Beloved, please turn with me in your Bibles to uh, the book of Jonah as we continue our series, Salvation uh, Belongs to the Lord. Uh, the title of this series I've taken from chapter uh, 2 and the end of Jonah's prayer from the belly uh, of the whale. Jonah chapter 2. Would you please stand with me as we read the entirety of this chapter, verses 1 through 10. Please hear the word of God. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Here ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. O Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Reverend John Dorsey was a faithful missionary to New Delhi, India for over 50 years. You've heard me talk about him uh, in the past. He is uh, like the grandfather I never had. Uh, One of my grandfathers died before I was born, and the other died when I was just a a small child. And so, in a way, uh, I sort of adopted him as my my, uh, grandfather. He uh, was a bright, stout, eccentric missionary pastor who'd been courageously proclaiming the gospel in India for over half a century when I met him. He helped to plant numerous churches and also establish a Christian school that grew to over 2,500 students. In fact, it became uh, a school that had a list, a waiting list of hundreds and hundreds of children. Most notably, Reverend Dorsey was a man of prayer. Everything he did was bathed in prayer. This may be the biggest impression that Reverend Dorsey had on me as a seminary student, visiting him three times in the mid-90s. He was constant and steadfast in prayer. Every morning, we would wake up at 4 a.m. to pray and to read the scriptures. With a tinge of humor and a sparkle in his eye, Mr. Dorsey would frequently remind me that we were saying our prayers and reading scripture before the Brahmin priests down the road began saying their prayers over the uh, loudspeaker, and also reading the Hindu Vedas. 
after we prayed and read Scripture together for 30 minutes or so every morning, we would then seek God in private prayer before breakfast. I remember peering into his study one time and seeing him and his old body hunched over in prayer, crying out to the Lord in fervent prayer. At breakfast and most meals, we would give thanks before and after we ate. They weren't long prayers, just short expressions of gratitude to a loving and a faithful father. They were childlike acknowledgments of God's abiding presence and faithful provision in our lives. During the day, it seemed like there were always reasons to call upon the Lord, uh, bearing countless responsibilities on his shoulders. Uh, there were always things being brought to Reverend Dorsey's attention. I noticed that his reflex was always to pray. Let's pray. Martin Luther once said, pray and let God worry. Pray and let God worry. That, I believe, was Reverend Dorsey's approach. It was a holy instinct a holy instinct that developed over 50 years of gospel ministry in a country with over a billion people teeming with detestable idols and false worship. The smell of, of idolatrous incense was everywhere. The spiritual darkness in India was palpable. The only time I felt I may have been out praying, Reverend Dorsey, was when we were in Delhi traffic. Whether we were in a motor rickshaw, on a bike, in a car, or on a bus, I thought I was probably going to die every time we started moving. Nothing inspires prayer like Delhi traffic. Staying with Reverend Dorsey, uh, the day also uh, ended with prayer. Every evening before bedtime, we would spend a few minutes reading the scriptures and praying, giving thanks to God for his love, for his promises, uh, for his faithfulness for his protection, and we would bring our requests before the throne of grace. Reverend Dorsey modeled what it means to be a, a Reformed pastor and Christian missionary devoted to prayer. Prayer was pervasive at the beginning, in the middle, and at the end of his days. His commitment to prayer was as close to the Apostle Paul's commitment that I've ever seen. That is, the practice of praying without ceasing and praying constantly. My old friend is now in the presence of God and the angels, but his godly example will always be etched upon my heart and my mind. And beloved, God calls us as well to be devoted to prayer. A vibrant and growing prayer life is a non-negotiable for Christian believers. Uh, I believe that we all pray too little Puritan Thomas Watson was right when he expressed that a godly man will as soon live without food as without prayer. What does this say about how godly we are? John Calvin writes in his Institutes that words fail to explain how necessary prayer is and in how many ways the exercise of prayer is profitable. Surely, with good reason, the Heavenly Father affirms that the only stronghold of safety is in calling upon his name. Don't you love that? The only stronghold of safety is calling upon his name. Prayer, of course, was typically the reflex of Old Testament prophets. But it wasn't for Jonah. It wasn't for Jonah, the fleeing prophet. 
He was a different kind of missionary than Reverend John Dorsey, who willingly went over to New Delhi, India, to give his life for the Indians whom he was seeking to reach. No, Jonah fled. He fled. It wasn't his reflex to pray in chapter 1. It wasn't for Jonah, that is, until now, until chapter 2, that is, until being swallowed by a whale. That'll get your prayer life going being swallowed by a whale. You see, Jonah was running from God. Jonah was running from God. It's the refrain of chapter 1, isn't it? That Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord. And when one flees the presence of the Lord, he is certainly not in a spiritual frame. He is not in a posture of prayer. Jonah was called by God to go to Nineveh to preach the word of God to these enemies of Israel, to preach God's judgment, to preach God's promises. But Jonah ran in the opposite direction to Joppa, caught a ship, headed for Tarshish. But he could not outrun God. That's the the foolishness that we often display in humanity is that we actually think that we can run from God. But we can't run from God. God is everywhere. His presence is everywhere, and he is drawing his people to himself, and he's doing so through his gospel word and through the irresistible power of the Holy Spirit. I've heard it said in the past, people have said to me, I don't know why, but at one, at one point I began to believe this message that I was ignoring for so long. I began to believe it. Why, why is that? Because the Holy Spirit's powerful. He's irresistible to draw to himself sinners. And so he tries to outrun God, but this doesn't work. God strikes the sea with a great storm, and the crew, in order to pacify the storm so that they all wouldn't perish, takes uh, Jonah's advice and throws Jonah overboard just after they said a little prayer, Lord, may his blood not be on our hands. This has to happen. When they did, the storm ceased. And Jonah, the son of Amittai, God's prophet, was swallowed up by a great fish, probably a whale. And here the impulse to pray was suddenly, immediately revived in the prophet. Look with me at Jonah 1 and verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jonah 2 and verse 1. Then Jonah prayed. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. As Sinclair Ferguson states, here we see not only a miracle of preservation, but of restoration. God is restoring his prophet The prayer that he prayed, of course, uh, is a memorable one, and it's an instructive one recorded here in chapter 2. The first thing I want us to see is that Jonah called out to the Lord in distress. Have you ever called out to the Lord in distress? Jonah called out to the Lord in distress, and, and as he did so, he drew upon the scriptures that he had learned as a young Hebrew boy, that he had learned his whole life. These scriptures particularly in the Psalms, came back to him when he was in the belly of the fish. 
these truths, these promises came back to him when he was in this time of great distress. As I've said many times from this pulpit, as it concerns our own covenant children, we put the furniture of the doctrine in the minds of our children and we pray that the lights will be turned on one day. For me, it was in a jail cell in Pickens County, South Carolina, when all the doctrine I had learned as a youth suddenly dawned upon me as the Spirit of God worked, the light was turned on, and suddenly there's this beautiful array of doctrine that is not just in my mind, but now it is in my heart. And for Jonah, something similar happened. All this truth came back to him. He was able to recall it and to remember all of it in his time of trouble. And here's one of the reasons, dear ones, that we pray the Psalms, sing the Psalms, read the Psalms, use the Psalms for our call to worship, constantly go back to the Psalms, because the Psalms were a part of the very identity of the people of God in the Old Testament and a part of the people of God, really, until about the mid-18th century when we started singing different things than psalms. And we started singing hymns and psalms, and then we went to singing hymns, and now we don't sing hymns or songs in the modern church. We sing something else, choruses and these kinds of things. And they're not all bad, but none of them match up to the truth and the power and the divine inspiration of the psalms. Rick Phillips, in his commentary on Jonah, comments on this very point. He says, Jonah's long experience with the Psalms results in the greatest of all helps in his darkest hour of need. His mind is returned to the Lord and his heart is refreshed in God's grace. Christians who make it their practice to stroll frequently through the garden of the Psalms, who make a practice of singing the Psalms and committing them to memory, will be well repaid in their hours of darkness doubt, and despair. With words, with words fitted just for their troubled situation, words designed to take faltering faith by the hand and lead it once again to the Lord. It's the Psalms. We pray the Psalms. We bring to memory the Psalms in our times of distress. It's what Jonah did. In fact, There are allusions in this prayer to Psalm 30, Psalm 5, 16, 18, 31, 42, 50, 65, 88, and 120. There are allusions to all of these psalms in this beautifully packed prayer. What Jonah is doing is echoing back to God his own word. And we see what a blessing it was and has been and is to generations of Christians who read these words. Look with me again at verses 1 through the beginning of verse 6. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet shall I 
Look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around, about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God. Notice here that God, in his providence, according to his purpose, plunged Jonah into the depths and despair, into the depths of the sea and the depths of despair and distress to reveal to him afresh the heights of his grace and salvation. He took him to the depths in order to show him the heights of his grace. It's what God will sometimes do to bring his wandering sheep back to himself. He puts us in the belly of Sheol, in the heart of the stormy seas, with floods surrounding us, with the waves and billows passing over, with death or ruin staring us in the face, only to hear our cry for mercy and deliver us from where our sins or our despair or our doubt or our distress were leading us. The Lord is so faithful to do this. He takes us to these places, dear ones, as severe mercies, as ways, as we sung earlier, to remove the dross from our faith, to strengthen us in the end. Because when we come through a trial on the other end, we are stronger and we are, we are less stuck to this world. We are less drawn to the siren calls of the world that seek to draw us away from God. And we are more committed to the Lord And we are more useful to the Lord in the lives of others. This is what happened to Jonah. He was the selfish, reluctant prophet fleeing from God's presence, fleeing from God's purposes, fleeing fleeing from God's the privilege God had given him to be a spokesman for him. And God, again, pursued him, plunged him into the depths, and then raised him to the heights of his grace and mercy. In 1675, Samuel Rodegast wrote a hymn that many of us are familiar with. Whatever my God ordains is right. He writes this, Whatever my God, whatever my God ordains is right, his holy will abideth. I will be still whate'er he doth and follow where he guideth. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fall. Wherefore to him I leave it all. He goes on. Whate'er my God ordains is right, though now this cup in drinking may bitter seem to my faint heart, I take it all unshrinking. My God is true. Each morn anew, sweet comfort shall Excuse me, sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart, and pain and sorrow shall depart. Finally, he writes, Whate'er my God ordains is right, here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall, and so to him I leave it all. Precious truths for the suffering Christian believer. 
when we, dear ones, go into the belly of the fish metaphorically, and some of us have already been there, some of us are going there, and one day we will all, at one point, be in that moment where we are passing from this life to the next, and we can trust the Lord as we are plunged into those difficulties, those challenges. The Lord will keep us. He will bless us. He will strengthen us through it all. And so, secondly, we see that God restored. He answered his prayer, and he restored Jonah. God answered him and restored him. Look with me now at verses 6 through 9. The end of verse 6. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. I mean, you can just imagine for a moment being in the belly of a whale. You sense that your life is slipping away, and then you remember, ah, I remember the promises of God. I'm going to call upon him because he's the one who sent this whale. He's the one who made this whale. I am in his hands. His purposes shall prevail. I am his prophet. I can trust him. I will cry out to him. And so he does. And so he does. He cries out to the Lord. The Lord, as it were, could have left him to his own misery and devices. He could have let him continue on to Tarshish and live out the remainder of his days estranged from God and from God's people. But God chased him down, as it were, and brought Jonah back into his loving presence. And Jonah, now in the belly of the fish, called upon his name. Out of the place of deep distress, he called out, and the Lord answered him. The Lord answered him, Beloved, never forget this. Wherever you are, if you have a day where you have strayed away from the Lord, if you have a time where you are in great despair over a deep loss, struggle, just know this. It is the Christian's privilege to call upon the name of the Lord, and a loving Father hears your cry, and He will answer you. He will answer you. Question 129 of the Heidelberg Heidelberg Catechism, um, which is the final question and answer, the last part of the Heidelberg Catechism on thankfulness, as it were, uh, is on the Lord's Prayer. And the very last question and answer deal with the last word of the Lord's Prayer, which is amen. Amen. What does amen mean? Question 129 asks. Amen means it is true and certain, namely everything that's in the Lord's Prayer. It's true. It's certain. A lot of uncertain things in this world, but not what's in the Lord's Prayer. Amen means it is true and certain, for God has much more certainly heard my prayer than I feel in my heart that I desire this of Him. It is more certain that God has heard our prayer than we feel in our heart that he's heard our prayer or wants to hear our prayer. How comforting is that? God 
knows our weakness. And he loves us. He's there for us. Look there in verses 8 and 9 with me. Those who pay regards to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. In studying these verses this week, I it couldn't help but think that maybe this expression in Jonah's prayer is, is a, an evidence that he is now ready uh, to go to Nineveh, to do the Lord's will. Notice that he is expressing a seemingly a commitment to finally do what God has called him to do, praying the truth that he was about to preach to the idolatrous Ninevites. Jonah fled God's presence with a heart of rebellion, and now he's back in God's presence, even though he's in the belly of a whale. You can be in God's presence anywhere. And you can commune with God anywhere. And here is Jonah in the belly of the whale, communing with God. He did have a heart of rebellion. Now he's in God's presence with a heart of gratitude. He's praying. It's what the Lord does in the lives of his sometimes straying children. Perhaps there are some here this evening who've been straying. Perhaps your walk with God has come to a standstill and you are prayerless. Your heart is cold towards God. Perhaps it's due to secret sin. Perhaps sexual sin or the root of bitterness towards someone. Or a root of deceit in the heart. You see, our hearts are a funny thing. When we allow sin to take root and to begin to fester, it messes things up. It messes up relationships, particularly and, and, and primarily our relationship with the Lord. It doesn't, it doesn't ruin it, but it, 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 it brings obstruction to sweet fellowship with the Lord. It makes our hearts cold. It, it brings obstruction to relationships within our homes and in our friendships and in our church. It's what sin does. It certainly makes us prayerless. Perhaps some here this evening are having a Jonah moment, a Jonah moment in your life, and your experience mirrors Jonah's more than you would like. If that's true, I have some encouragement for you. Don't wait until God puts you in a belly of a whale before you repent and turn from whatever it is that has taken root in your heart. Whatever that root of bitterness or sin or unbelief that's in your heart, repent. Turn away from the vain idols that are spoken of in verse 8. Don't pay regard to vain idols, whatever it may be. You know what an idol is? Anything that replaces God in your life. Don't pay regard to vain idols. Don't forsake the hope of God's steadfast love. That's his mercy. But rather, with the voice of thanksgiving, look to Christ, who is the ultimate sacrifice. And in him, then, you will live a life, a living sacrifice unto the Lord for his glory. Stop displacing God in your life with idols. Turn from your sin. 
cry out from the depths to the Lord for mercy and declare with Jonah that salvation belongs to the Lord. Not only will doing so bring you back into growing communion with God, it will greatly increase your prayer life. And some might ask, well, pastor, this is all helpful, but how can I increase my prayer life? How can I make my prayer life, in addition to turning from sin, how can, can I make my prayer life one that is more vibrant and full? Now, there's too much to talk about to answer that question tonight, but there are three things I want to encourage you with as we consider how to be greater motivated, uh, more uh, greatly motivated to, to pray. The first point is this, consider the gospel. Consider the gospel. The first and best way to increase your devotion to personal prayer is indeed to meditate upon God's love and mercy for you in Christ. Beloved, consider the good news that Christ came down from heaven for you. He came down not for a a, a sort of nameless blob of humanity. He came for you. Your name is etched on his, the scars on his hands and his feet. Consider the good news that Christ came down from heaven for you. He came to reconcile you to God, to make a new and living way for you into the holy of holies through his flesh. Meditate on the fact that the eternal Son of God was born into this wretched and sinful world of a virgin for you. He did that for you. He, he perfectly fulfilled the requirements of God's law and laid his life down on the cross for you. Consider this. He rescued you from the guilt and penalty of your wretched sins and mine. Consider that he rose from the dead on the third day and lives for you right now at God's right hand. And because he has united you to himself, there is nothing that can separate you from his love ever. You want to improve your prayer life? Consider that one day in the future the trumpet will sound and Jesus will return in the clouds and welcome you into his everlasting inheritance. And you will dwell with God and his redeemed church forever and ever in your everlasting inheritance. In the new heavens and the new earth. Yes, consider that unshakable kingdom that you have been brought into by the grace of God through faith and will never be expelled from. Consider the fact that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him over for us all, how will he not with him give us all things? As you attend the means of grace, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, listen to and exercise your faith in the word of the gospel. Abide in Christ by faith and, 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 and look to Christ as you hear the preaching and you uh, see the baptisms at the font and you come to the Lord's table. The gospel is the chief motivation towards a growing devotion to prayer. The gospel. Not the pastor up front going on and on with various rules about how to pray better. It's the gospel that's the chief motivator. When we look to Christ, we want to cry out to Him. We want to praise Him. We want to thank Him. We want our life to be in the motion of prayer ceaselessly. Gospel is the chief motivation. 
towards a growing devotion to prayer. It's what moved Paul to pray in the opening chapters of Ephesians and Philippians. It's what will move us to pray as well. The glorious gospel of God will always be our chief motivation to pray. And the more we are acquainted with the God of the gospel, the more we will want to call upon him. I love the way my systematic theology professor, Doug Kelly, put it in one of his books. He said, quote, The better we know what our Heavenly Father is like, the more we will readily leap into his arms in prayer. So not only meditate on the gospel, secondly, consider the privilege of prayer. Consider the privilege. Prayer beloved, is not a human right. It's an undeserved privilege. And it's been given to us, it's come to us at great cost. Sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we take prayer for granted. We all do it. And sometimes we forget the awesome dynamic of prayer, namely that Almighty God The sovereign creator of the universe hears and answers our prayers. From the lisping prayers of toddlers to the mature prayers of aged saints, the triune God hears and answers the prayers of his people. Amen? When we remember who we are as wretched sinners and who he is as a holy God, we cannot help but be astonished by the nature of prayer. In a sermon uh, preached in London on August 23rd, 1888, Charles Spurgeon reminds us of the extraordinary wonder of calling upon the name of the Lord. He says this, quote, Our prayer must climb to that great ear which hears the symphonies of the perfected and the hallelujahs of cherubim and seraphim. Is there not something very wonderful about this? That we who are both insignificant and unworthy should be able to speak to him who made the stars and upholds all things by the word of his power? Yet this is the essence of prayer, to rise in human feebleness, to talk with divine omnipotence, in nothingness to deal with all sufficiency. You cannot venture upon this without the mediator, Christ, But with the mediator, what a wonderful fellowship a worm of the dust is permitted to enjoy with the infinite God. What condescension there is in a sinner communing with the thrice holy Jehovah. Seek after this communion. Nothing can excel it. Thirdly, consider God's sovereignty. Consider God's sovereignty. You know, some ask, Why pray if God is sovereign and his eternal decrees are fixed and immutable? Doesn't that make prayer a waste of time? Doesn't belief in God's sovereignty dampen our zeal to pray? In response to those questions, I would ask, why pray if God is not sovereign? Why pray if God is not sovereign? What good would it do for Jonah or anyone to pray to an impotent Deity, God's sovereignty doesn't make our prayers superfluous. It makes them powerful and effectual. It makes them meaningful and significant. Why? Because, now please hear this, because our prayers are a divinely ordained means through which God's sovereign purposes are realized. 
God not only ordains the ends, but also the means to his holy will. And so God's sovereignty encourages prayer. It doesn't discourage it. Who wants to pray to a God who's not sovereign, who is too weak to help us? Our prayers are divinely ordained means through which God's sovereign purposes are realized. God ordains the ends and the means of his holy decrees. Nothing is left to chance, and the Lord in his divine wisdom and love grants his adopted children the privilege of participating in his fixed and unfolding plans through prayer. Again, Douglas Kelly explains that, quote, when we begin to grasp the truth that our prayers can be used as a part of the outworkings of God's secret will, then we discover that prayer is not at all rendered unnecessary or futile because of the existence of the predestined plan or will of God. Rather, prayer is the means of actually carrying out that plan. It's glorious and mysterious, mysterious, is it not? The Lord's Prayer underscores this truth when Jesus teaches us to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy what? Will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Beloved, Jonah cried out to God, and God delivered him. Jonah went from being the prayerless, reluctant prophet to the man who cried out to God in the belly of the whale, in the depths of the sea, in the unlikely tomb of the whale, with the waves billowing over him in a time of deep distress. He cried out to the Lord. He remembered God's promises in the midst of the belly of the whale, in the midst of his hour of need, and he remembered the Lord. He remembered his word, and he cried out to him, using the words of Scripture, echoing back to God the promises and truths of his word. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah was where he wasn't supposed to be, And now he's exactly where he needs to be, in the belly of a whale, getting carted back to the place where he will minister God's word. Oh, how kind and generous and gracious God is to do this for his wandering saints. Jonah now is practicing the presence of God. He is in the presence of God, in communion with God, and carrying out God's command as a submissive prophet. Praise the Lord for God's grace and mercy. As Christian believers, it is only in Christ that we are brought from the depths of our sin to the heights of God's grace in Christ. It is only in Christ that we are saved. And as we come to this table this evening, let us remember that Christ was the greater Jonah who was thrown into the sea, the stormy sea of this world of sin, and through our sin, being uh, 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 penalized and, and, and placed upon Christ Jesus on the cross, the storms of his wrath against us have ceased. And Christ went in the tomb for three days and three nights, and he came out of that tomb victorious over Satan, sin, death, uh, and hell. And these are the things we are mindful of as we come to this table where the bread and the wine, symbols of Christ and his salvation for us are set forth. We partake of them thinking of Christ, turning from our sin, turning from the vain idols that we often give too much regard for 
and looking to Christ and his steadfast, covenant-keeping love, and we receive it and rest in it for our salvation. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you uh, so much for uh, this wonderful and instructive prayer in Jonah chapter 2. And we pray, Lord, that our own uh, lives would uh, not be as was Jonah's, uh, fleeing from your presence, uh, running from your plan, uh, but rather that uh, we would uh, seek to honor and to glorify you by repenting of our sin and throwing ourselves into your merciful arms and trusting uh, in your purposes for us. Oh, Lord, we love you. Fill us with your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name.